You're listening to the Mr. Sensational Gino Vega Podcast on the Odyssey Robots Radio Network. For the one in attendance and the tens listening around the world, let's get ready to podcast! Folks, it's me. Mr. Sensational Gino Vega, with another episode of the Mr. Sensational Gino Vega podcast on the IC Robots Radio Network. And thanks to our esteemed network leaders' archival skills and powers of continuity, uh, it has been determined that this is, in fact, episode 12 of the MSGV podcast. Uh, We basically did a reboot back with episode 10 after a several-year hiatus, And I wasn't sure exactly where we had left off, so I've been referring to that as the first episode of the reboot of the this, the that, the third. Uh, And ISR quite rightly thought it would be easier just to continue with the numbering we had started with. So this is, in fact, episode 12, folks. Thanks for listening. If you are new to the show, the Mr. Sensational Gino Vega podcast is a program where I, Mr. Sensational Gino Vega walk you through various thoughts, observations, and reflections on experiences I've had in my exceedingly ordinary life, a show in which we attempt to sensationalize the everyday. So let's get right to doing that here on episode 12. Now, if you tuned in last time, you may recall that the show ended on a bit of a cliffhanger as I was talking about both the merits and frustrations of creativity for creativity's sake. And we will continue and conclude that topic today. Uh, But first, just a little check-in with what's been going on lately in the Life Sensational. Now, I don't know what things are like in your particular neck of the woods, but here where I reside in Napa, California, things are getting sort of bizarre. I've been doing a lot of walking during uh, these pandemic times. Um, Try to go for an hour walk at least every day. And one of my walking routes involves heading down from the hill where we live. We live in a neighborhood called Alta Heights. And Alta Heights, um, at least the part that we're in, I think they call it original Alta Heights. It's kind of this funky neighborhood that used to be part of the unincorporated county. So there are uh, missing sidewalks in certain places. Um, and just kind of an overall, the houses kind of have this bungalow vibe. Um, it is a neighborhood that according to a friend of my youngest daughter, Miss Sensational 2, is sketchy. Um, this particular friend lives in a more well-heeled, uh, neighborhood of Napa known as Browns Valley, a neighborhood that in my estimation is excruciatingly boring. No offense to any Browns Valley residents that might be out there. But in any case, the selling point of Alta Heights, particularly before uh, the days of COVID, is that it is literally a 10 to 15 minute walk down the hill to downtown Napa, where there are all kinds of bars, restaurants, various cultural amenities. So if people come to town to visit instead of having to like drive to go do something, go out to a restaurant somewhere, go get some drinks... Uh, you could just turn it into a walk, go walk down there, um, chill out for a while, then walk back to the house. It's kind of, it makes it nice for uh, socializing. 
But of course, that's been less of a selling point of late. But that walk to downtown is one of my um, exercise walks that I've been doing during the pandemic routine because it's about 10 to 15 minutes downtown. And then I walk, I, w- I basically walk 30 minutes in um, further deeper into the downtown and then turn around and walk back. And it's a, it's an hour walk. So it's a nice walk. And, you know, you're, it's a variety because you're through our kind of, it's not a rural neighborhood, but kind of rural suburban neighborhood. And then all of a sudden you're in the uh, international tourist destination of downtown Napa and back again. So varied uh, topography, varied uh, physical landmarks. It makes for an entertaining walk. And part of that entertainment is the sort of freak show aspect uh, that you see once you get downtown. As I mentioned, Napa is an international tourist destination due to its positioning in the wine country. Um, So at any given time when you go downtown, particularly, you know, back when things were quote unquote normal, you're liable to see Lamborghinis, Maseratis, Bentleys, all these expensive, ridiculous automobiles and all these um, deranged looking um, rich people on their Romanesque quest to consume as uh, many um, food and alcohol items as possible, I suppose, um, while driving around in ostentatious, unnecessary vehicles. But what was mildly amusing pre-pandemic has become somewhat creepy post. Now, when COVID first hit and the state of California was sort of somewhat taking seriously stay-at-home orders, uh, everything pretty much shut down downtown. Places were doing um, takeout and such, but when I would walk uh, downtown during those first couple months, it was really a ghost town, which was strange at first, um, but then I got used to it. But then after, you know, about three months or so, the state um, did its uh, reopening. And overnight, things didn't get back to normal, but there were probably about half as many people downtown dining and drinking as there would normally be. And that somehow was even stranger than the ghost town because it felt like you were in a dream when you walked down there because things looked almost normal, but not quite. And then um, shortly after California reopened, skyrocketing COVID cases um, throughout the state and then also in our particular county caused some of those reopenings to be ratcheted back. And now everyone has kind of settled into a new normal where everything just takes place outdoors. Outdoor dining is the new thing with all the businesses downtown. Um, Certain streets have been closed. Certain areas that used to not be uh, dedicated to dining have been turned into dining areas. And I guess it will be all good in the hood until uh, our quote-unquote winter starts. Which, (laughs) it's funny because everyone's freaking out about that. Like, how's anyone going to go outdoors in the winter? And it's like, bro, we live in Northern California. It's, I, I, I remember maybe maybe one, maybe two days, uh, last winter where it was hard to be outside, but I don't know. People are, people are fragile. And, uh, there's a concern that while this is working for businesses now, what's going to happen when people are not able to languish outdoors. So anyway, as I'm recording this, the last time I did the downtown walk, it was a little surreal. I mean, not that things hadn't already been increasingly surreal over the last months, but it just kind of reached a fever pitch. Walked down there. It was a Friday night or Friday evening, kind of hazy sky. Um, It was the first Friday where 
basically all of the downtown dining stuff had been fully dialed in. Um, the uh, major street closures that were going to happen had been made official, and it was popping off down there. The place was mobbed. Uh, there were people everywhere, a lot of people wearing masks, but then a lot of people in their wine country tourism finest making a show of being unmasked, saw plenty of the aforementioned luxury sports cars, and there was just a real freneticism in the air. It looked like people were almost just like pushing past and climbing over each other to mob up to restaurants and other people were waiting in huge packs for their moment to get in or get out, I guess, because no one is actually going in. But just a, a very a term I used earlier in the broadcast, a Romanesque vibe. It was just like people clawing and uh, gnawing for their final moments of uh, luxurious uh, recreating before, before end times. And I will add the caveat that I am 100% not an end times guy. Like everyone thinks that whatever period they're in, it seems, is, is end times. I figure we just go through a lot of sort of marginally bad times to somewhat better, to bad, to worse, to good, to great, to bad. It's an ongoing cycle until the actual end times. But I do not feel that we are there yet. I think it seems incredibly narcissistic to think that you somehow are living in those proverbial end times of all the people in human history. And as I walked through the downtown that Friday night and the scene just took on more and more of the look of a real-life Hieronymus Bosch painting, um, look up Google Hieronymus Bosch if you haven't checked that out. It's some good stuff. B-O-S-C-H. Um, but as it kind of reached this crescendo, suddenly there were all these sirens and emergency vehicle noise. And I was walking past an Italian restaurant in the square downtown and um, a fire truck and all these ambulances pulled up and uh, the EMTs and firemen walked up to the outdoor dining area and they were attending to some guy that was sitting at one of the tables out there. And as they were kind of talking to him, he was still sitting upright and other other members of his party at the table were just still sitting there eating their fine Italian uh, dinner. So <laughs> it was just kind of an amazing, amazing capper to that scene. And I very quickly found the nearest uh, post office uh, USPS mailbox I could find that I'd been looking for, which was kind of my whole goal of going down there. In addition to the exercise, because I had a package I needed to mail. Threw the package in the mail, turned around, and walked back to uh, the peace and solitude of Sensational Manor. So that's been the scene over here where I live lately. And I'll probably have more tales of Napa to come in uh, future episodes. I've only lived here for a year, um, and it has been uh, an interesting experience for me because I've only ever lived in either um, kind of bigger cities, Oakland and San Jose, California, or uh, Santa Rosa, which is considerably, considerably smaller than those two, but is still a bona fide city. And then Napa is the first time I've lived in a straight up small town. That's not entirely true. I lived in one when I was a kid for a while. But as far as being an adult, the first bona fide small town I've lived in, but it's a small town that also has this weird international tourism component going on. So interesting mix of things and happenings um, uh, can be very Twin Peaks-esque at times. Um, so more about Napa in the future. Just wanted to put that out there for now. Um, I do want to say before we move back on to creativity, um, in reference to that uh, USPS mailbox, 
Icy Robots had uh, suggested that he and I address this issue on our respective shows, and I fully agreed. With what is going on in uh, the United States currently, if you are a U.S. listener to the show, you are probably aware that there's been a push from our current federal regime uh, to use Cobra-esque tactics to undermine the United States Postal Service in an effort to suppress voter participation in our upcoming November election. And as a listener, whether you support a hopeful return to some kind of functional baseline in American governance, or you support a continued slide into anarchic madness and knuckle-dragging, I believe you should have the ability to participate fully in the democratic voting process. So, of course, all of us here at the IC Robots Radio Network implore you to please participate in this upcoming election and vote, but we also want to make sure that you have the tips and tools necessary to make sure your vote can actually happen, especially in this strange time of pandemic voting. And um, in my case, I have actually been a mail-in voter for, I think, my entire voting life. I have voted in person a few times, but I've always had the option to vote by mail, and more often than not, I have. So I'm not going to get too much into it here um, on this episode because I have other things I want to uh, cover, but maybe next time we'll do a little breakdown on some tips about what it's like to vote by mail for those of you who may be experiencing it for the first time. And what steps you can take to ensure that shenanigans aside, your ballot is actually delivered and counted. So we'll, we'll hit that up on the next episode for sure. But wanted to put that out there that that is um, front and center on the minds of us here at the IC Robots Radio Network. And with that, we're going to take a quick break and be back with our final look at what it's like to suffer through creativity and creative projects for us schmoes who do it just for the sake of doing it. On the Mr. Sensational Gino Vega podcast, on the IC Robots Radio Network. Welcome back to this episode 12 of the Mr. Sensational Gino Vega podcast on the IC Robots Radio Network. And last time we were talking about creativity, the uh, inner need and drive to uh, produce creative projects that at least I feel and I imagine others out there possibly feel as well. And the trials, tribulations, and frustrations that come with these creative projects for the vast majority of us who are in a position of doing them just to do them, who aren't in the fortunate position of, uh, I guess it's fortunate position, I don't know, I guess we could debate that, but aren't in the position of um, creating in a way that sustains them socioeconomically, aka makes them money. And in episode 11, when we looked back at my track record of these creative projects for creativity's sake. We looked at uh, playing with action figures I did when I was young, uh, making my own garbage pail kids in fourth grade, 
going to a state uh, summer school for the arts for creative writing. And we're going to pick it back up today with my first creative pursuit that had any sort of audience for it. And before we get started, I just want to make two apologies. First of all, if any of these anecdotes that I'm dropping on this topic were our repeats from stuff I've talked about in the earlier run of this podcast. I apologize. It has been so many years. I can't remember everything biographical that I've covered, so I may be repeating myself a little bit here in the early days of these uh, newer episodes. And the other apology I want to make is I am in a circumstance today where I'm recording in a part of the uh, sensational manner where I'm here with my cat, Summer, who is insisting on crying constantly. So if she shows up in the background audio, I apologize, but that's just the way it's going to be for right now. And with that, I think she actually moved on. So let's move on as well. Um, When I was in high school, I had started attending... um, shows, we called them. They they were not concerts, they were shows. You would get roundly um, ridiculed when you were a uh, noob on the show scene and described going to a concert, as I learned. No, they're shows. So I had been going to shows of uh, bands at uh, the Phoenix Theater in nearby Petaluma, California, nearby to Santa Rosa, where I lived. And I have talked about this on an old episode of the MSGV podcast, where I talked about my history with music, with listening to music. And anyway, we would go to the Phoenix Theater and see bands like Green Day, which was a small local-ish band at the time that played there a lot. Uh, Would see bands like Fugazi, um, Social Distortion, pretty much all all the bands on kind of the the college rock uh, punk alternative circuit from the mid-1990s would pass through the Phoenix Theater. And in conjunction with going to see these live bands, I had also been collecting cassette tapes and vinyl LPs from our local record store, the last record store in Santa Rosa, California, which still exists to this day. ISR still shops there and talks about it on his show from time to time. Um, but yeah, I had started off with mainly the heavy metal, thrash metal genre, moved into uh, punk rock music, and I ended up buying, I believe it was probably on cassette tape, a record from a Southern California punk band by the name of Face to Face. The record was entitled, if I'm remembering correctly, Don't Turn Away. I'm not a good uh, record title, song title trivia guy. I'm horrible with that stuff. Like there's there's records that I've listened to five billion times, literally, where I don't actually know the names of any of the songs. <laughs> That's never been my strong suit. Anyway, had this Face to Face album, uh, Don't Turn Away, uh, and something just clicked between the bands I'd seen live and listening to this record, and all of a sudden it occurred to me, you know, I could do this. I could start a band. And um, ended up getting together with uh, two guys I knew from school. Um, I don't even think we knew each other like super well at that time, and I don't even totally remember how the three of us uh, came together. I'd have to sit back and think about that. And this is a whole topic for its own episode or episodes, the history of uh, this band I was in, The Invalids. But uh, I ended up getting together with the bass player, Tony, and the drummer, Sean, at Sean's mom's house in Santa Rosa, And we wrote a song or a couple of songs and basically simultaneously started teaching ourselves how to kind of play our instruments. Me, me, the least, I was always the least uh, instrument play guy of the band. I played guitar 
extremely rudimentarily and poorly. Um, anyway, we threw together a few songs. Sean didn't even have a drum set. He was playing on a bucket while sitting in a lawn chair. And Tony and I were using like little crate practice amps. And that was the beginning of this band that we had actively for the next several years and then has popped back um, up into existence here and again over the years in various uh, reimagined incarnations. Now, the interesting thing about our band, The Invalids, which was named as kind of a play on words. On one hand, we were sort of weakling high school skinny punk rocker guys, so the invalids, but then also we were weakling, skinny punk rocker guys, so we weren't particularly valid. We were the invalids. Could work either way. But the thing is, and this is going to be my, uh, I used to have to walk to school 20 miles each direction in the snow moment, but we started this band at a time when bands weren't really the thing that they would become later, particularly like punk and alternative bands. Um, it, It was the days before guitar hero the day before like just everyone's every high school kids natural inclination was it's time to start the band you know there just weren't a lot like at our school i don't think there were that many other bands if any when we started um it was kind of as far as suburban punk bands go um at that particular generation that particular time it was sort of a frontier activity and it was also an activity that very certainly came with zero Uh, expectation of getting anything out of the venture other than the venture itself. I think if our band had a goal when we started, it was to maybe someday get to play a show at the Phoenix Theater in Petaluma, California. And through the hands of fate and being in the right place at the right time, that ended up happening very soon in the band's career after we'd only been around probably just for like a couple months or whatever. And I don't even know, like, I I still, I have no idea how this happened, but I got a phone call from Tom Gaffey, the guy that kind of ran and managed the Phoenix Theater. And he said, I hear you're in a band. Uh, Would you guys like to play a show? And I said, "Uh, yeah. (laughs) And we did. And that was the first of countless shows we played at the Phoenix Theater and other venues throughout Northern California and beyond. And a strange thing happened when we after we played that show and as we continued to play shows, there'd actually be like a handful of people that would actively watch our band and come to our next show. And I say this I'm in all um, modesty, I'm not trying to front like this was a big deal, but th- there was a extremely small amount of people that we didn't know that would support our band, that would come watch us play. And I think it's fair to say that that was something that none of the three of us really pictured or expected uh, going into the band venture. And it's also something that I never really figured out how to make sense of. Um, As we continued along with the band, um, with not a ton of effort, because again, we never started it off with any kind of sky-high expectations, so it was always just kind of a fun, creative hobby and pastime for us that a few other people decided they wanted to join in on the ride. Um, as the band moved on, we had a few different lucky breaks. We ended up getting to put out a uh, seven-inch extended play uh, vinyl record through the record label Lookout Records, which was the label that uh, Green Day started out on. So they were a label that had really good distribution. And so just by us putting out that small little record, um, 
tons of people, relatively speaking, uh, relative to what we could, to the audience we could ever have reached just on our own, were exposed to the band to the point that there's actually people to this day that I have not met in real life in far-flung parts of the country that remember the band and still think of it fondly. Again, something completely out of my realm of um, expectation or belief in what we were doing. And the only time I ever had this kind of experience with a creative project. And again, it still wasn't something um, that was like a career, like a life-sustaining creative project, but it did have an audience, which, you know, put it into a different realm than the than the homebrew garbage pail kids and the uh, uh, playing by myself in my bedroom with my action figures and making up those... Uh, sweeping narrative story arcs. So on one hand, the Invalids were pretty amazing experience, life experience. Uh, we got to travel to places that I probably wouldn't have gone to otherwise at that age. Um, throughout the continental United States, uh, we got to uh, play in Hawaii at one point. But at the same time, the fact that the project became much bigger than we ever intended or anticipated sort of creates its own problems. It it, break, it chips away at the purity of what you started with. And I mean, nothing really can ever remain pure as it goes out into the world. But with achievements outside of expectations come expectations. And with expectations, there just comes some negative stuff around creativity that I think marks too much of why people create. But it's also part of this tightrope that's very hard to walk because as soon as you start expecting something out of your creation, that is going to inform what you create and warp it to a certain degree because you are going to be trying then to make something that uh, will achieve expectations versus um, making something that is more of an honest reflection of your own internal creative need, creative processes. But at the same time, uh, if you stay totally honest, you're in your room playing with action figures. And that only goes so far, too, as far as uh, fulfilling your needs to uh, be out in the world creating in a way that actually communicates with others and elicits feedback, um, etc. And further, with a project uh, like The Invalids, where certain uh, relative successes come quick and early. And in this case, when you're not even expecting it, you kind of start to take, or at least I started to take the entire experience for granted. I just figured, well, this is what happens when you start a band, dude. And like, you know, uh, when this one's over, I'll just start another one. Same thing will happen. And this is just not true. I've realized as years have gone past, there's a lot of people that um, want to start bands or do start bands and again, I'm not saying that we achieved any great success, but I mean, it's hard to even get like people that you don't know to watch you, much less to come back again for more, much less to create a band that people, even a very small population of people, consider themselves fans of. So it took me a long time to be properly appreciative of what I experienced uh, with my time in The Invalids. And this was compounded by the fact that at the end of the day, I'm not even that big of a music guy. Like, I like music okay, but I'm just, I'm not, you know, some people like being in a band, that's their drive, that's their passion, that's everything they always wanted to do. 
And for me, it was like, it was fun. It was a good excuse to hang out with my friends. But at a certain point, I just got kind of burnt on it. I I don't like the uh, really sort of grotesque level of uh, self-promotion and networking you have to do to keep things going and to... You know, once it's once it's to a certain size, it's got to get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And just that was all boring to me because, again, it was just it was a garage band uh, to have some fun hanging out with my friends. And it led to, um, you know, some extra bonuses along the way that I do appreciate. But it was just it was kind of the strange uh, no man's land for me, because, yes, finally, I was doing something creative that others were interested in. But I wasn't really interested in it, which I guess sounds kind of lame. Uh, you know, it's like, shut up, you ingrate. You know, just be appreciative of what you got. And I am. I am. But it took a while to get there. And it still wasn't, it wasn't that golden mountaintop of I'm both creating something that others find useful or of worth, but it's also something that I find intensely personally fulfilling. And I mean, who really does reach that golden mountaintop doesn't even exist. Even if it is something that you start off uh, finding very personally rewarding, personally fulfilling, can you really maintain that passion once it becomes a job? I don't know. I haven't, I haven't ever taken anything that far that I've been that into to find out, but I, I feel like it's definitely a question to ask. And so moving from my creative boom period as far as a project that I was involved in that was of interest to others, we descend down to my own personal creative project, Skid Row, which was a few years after the original incarnation of the Invalids disbanded. I found myself in a very strange place in life. This was around 1999, 2000. I was living in the city of San Jose, California, a place where I knew no one except uh, my girlfriend that I was living with, uh, who is now my wife, Ms. Sensational. At the time we had moved there, for her to go to graduate school. And while things all turned out for the best in the end, it was kind of a brutal period for me because I was living there and I was sort of um, at loose ends. I wasn't really doing anything on my own at the time. And I'd kind of left everything else I had in my life behind. And I was half-heartedly going to a community college. I think it was San Jose City College. Um, to finish a math class that I needed in order to transfer um, to a uh, state school. And at the same time, this was one of my periods in life when I was very plugged into watching professional wrestling. Um, It was the dying end of the Monday Night Wars slash Attitude era that saw kind of golden ages for both World Championship Wrestling, WCW, and uh, World Wrestling Federation, WWF, and also the upstart uh, promotion, Extreme Championship Wrestling, ECW. was kind of doing a lot of, or had been doing a lot of groundbreaking and innovative things that were sort of setting the tone for the bigger companies. So I was watching all of this unfold, and this was also in the early days of um, the internet, or I guess you would say the early days of the internet as we know it now. But one of the things that I discovered online in conjunction with my wrestling fandom is that uh, people were participating in these things called e-wrestling federations, um, which were basically someone would set up an online website, like an angelfire.com site, if you remember that uh, primitive platform, and you would find a group of people and one person would sort of be the promoter, would run the thing. 
and everyone else would uh, create characters, kind of like a role-playing game, but without dice or anything. So people, each individual participant would have their own wrestler that they uh, participated as, and there'd be a message board, and the wrestler would post their interviews, you know, their, what you're gonna do, brother, type uh, promos, as they call them in wrestling, you know, written in the voice and the tone of uh, the character that the person was playing. And then the uh, e-wrestling promotion would have weekly television shows and monthly pay-per-view events where the different uh, players, their wrestlers, would have matches against each other, and the promoter would kind of write up what happened. They were kind of the dungeon master of the thing. They would take into account the quality of the, the writing, the quality of the promos that the wrestlers had cut on each other, and decide who they wanted to win or go over, as it were, in each of the matches, and then they would write the results of the show. Um, so I ended up starting my own e-wrestling promotion. And sadly, this is one of these things that's lost to the sands of time. I cannot for the life of me remember what it was called. Um, I do remember that I ran it as myself, my uh, real life name, Scott Morris. I was the promoter and he was a character on the show too. He was kind of like an Eric Bischoff, Vince McMahon type character. Um, he would come out to, uh, ACDC's money talks was, uh, his, uh, theme music, but then I also had a wrestling character that I used, a wrestler, and that was actually Mr. Sensational Gino Vega. That's the genesis of the character, Mr. Sensational Gino Vega, who I use as my avatar for all things online to this day. And somehow I found a group of people online to comprise the cast of characters that made up all the wrestlers in the promotion, and I would write up the results of all of the weekly television shows and monthly pay-per-views in excruciating detail. And I would do this during my math class at San Jose uh, City College, very similar to making the uh, garbage pale kids back in fourth grade. Um, and I'd spend quite a bit of time at home doing this because, again, these kind of pursuits, these kind of creative projects, even when they're totally frivolous like a e-wrestling federation, they inevitably take up a ton of time. And this one certainly took a lot of my time. So much so that, wait for it, I failed the math class. Actually, I think I just dropped it. But either way, it was a further setback in my attempt to move forward from a community college to a state school, which was not caused entirely by my time spent working on the e-wrestling federation, but that time spent certainly did not help my educational cause. But it did help that gnawing feeling that I needed to be creating something. And on one hand, because of my passion for wrestling fandom and writing about wrestling and such, it fulfilled the need much more so than, say, playing in a punk rock band did. But because it was such a uh, such an insulated thing that was never going to be of interest to anyone outside of the immediate people participating in the Fed... It created this massive depression at the same time. I was both listening to the part of me that said that I had to be producing something out into the world, but at the same time, listening to that and doing that production was killing another part of me. I think it was something about spending so much time on a pursuit that was never going to be anything other than a tree falling in the forest that was just extremely uh, existentially debilitating. And uh, so much so that I think I was almost worse off um, for having created than I would have been if I had just 
um, not listened to those impulses that were telling me that I needed to create. And that was something that stuck with me for some years moving forward. I kind of came to this decision that what's, what's the point? It's not, why do I need to create anything? Why can't I just be content, you know, watching some baseball games, watching wrestling, playing video games, sticking to myself? Why why do I need to put anything out there for anyone else in the world? It's just some ego, uh, egoic fool's errand that there's just, there's no need to do. Just quiet that part of my mind, let it go. And outside of a few fits and starts, I've pretty much held to that over the last eh, 20 years. Uh, there's been a few invalids reformations over the years that I have uh, participated in that would qualify as creativity. There was the initial burst of this podcast from a few years back, which I enjoyed doing, but then got distracted with work. Um, I haven't done a whole lot else, a little bit of writing here and there, but again, it's usually so much work for so little return other than the return that you get for, uh, fulfilling that uh, existential need to create that I've always gone back to this. Just leave it alone. Just be content. Why torture yourself with this? But when I stick with that, and as I watch my life kind of ticking away and the sands in the hourglass uh, falling through, never to be recovered, I think, man, what if I regret this in the end? You know, what if I'm... uh, laying there on the proverbial deathbed, or if I don't even get that chance, I just, something takes me out instantaneously. How would I feel about the fact that I just kept this creative energy bottled up inside, that I did nothing with it? There's got to be a middle ground. There's got to be a healthy way to process this and deal with it. And I think I've found it in a couple of ways. I've found it, uh, one, When I decided to um, take up this podcast again and probably, time permitting, um, work on some other writing projects, both related to this and unrelated, I've decided that there's enough time in the day to carve out a healthy amount of time to work on creative projects and not be bent into a knot or tied into a knot, twisted knot, I don't know, about whether anything comes from it, whether anyone listens, whether anyone cares. Um, and I'm, I think so far I've been able, <laughs> three episodes in, to, uh, with the podcast at least, I, I've hit that. I have a day or two a week that I spend doing this, and that's cool. It, it, it's a day or two a week that I put aside all the other stuff that I do and just create, and then I can go back to the rest of my life on those other days. And with that kind of a balance, it doesn't really matter whether uh, this shout into the void is landing anywhere or not. It's it's enough to make me happy and make me feel fulfilled. On the other hand, something that I realized about creation, and you know, people's mileage are gonna is gonna vary with this one depending on their personal life. But for me, I've made a lot of sacrifices in my life um, in order to achieve the family life that I have. I mentioned earlier how I had those kind of dismal years when I moved to San Jose to follow um, Ms. S uh, as she finished school. And I could have done stuff that in the short term was a lot more fun for me. I could have you know, gone where I wanted to do, do what I wanted to do. But I stuck with her. And the long-term uh, 
benefits of those choices, I think, I know, are, you know, much more positive than anything that would have come from short-term lack of sacrifice and the fact that we're still together to this day, that we have this family, that we get along, that um, being stuck together over the last five months of this pandemic has actually been a great thing because our family generally enjoys being around each other, and that's basically all we've been doing for the last last uh, almost half a year now. Um, and isn't that a creation of a sort on its own? And, I mean, it doesn't have an audience, but... It does have active living participants that are all kind of working at it together, much like a band or any other group project. Um, I think a lot of times those of us that have families or uh, it's just seen as this thing like, oh, of course you have that, but you got to go find something else. You got to look further. But I think there's something to be said. And it doesn't have to be a family because I know not everyone has a family situation, but even your friends, your community, whatever you're part of, that's creativity too. And I think allowing yourself to actively participate in whatever that community is, that's another important way of addressing that existential need that we have to really, I I don't think it's so much at the, in the end, it's not so much creativity. It's wanting to be part of something, wanting to be so that you're not just a a voice and a void that there's, you're connecting to other people. Um, I, I recently saw an ad on my Facebook feed for one of those masterclass things where a famous artist a writer or director or whatever will teach you how to be a successful creator. And it was a novelist, I believe. And I think there was a little snippet. She was talking about how one of the worst things of being a, a creator is having to deal with like other people in your life because they're always getting in the way of your, your creativity. And that just struck me as so sad because it's like, yeah, I mean, everyone, everybody needs some time on their own. Um, Don't you know you need some time? Or however that goes. But anyway, true, true. But I think that our culture oftentimes overlooks how important that time with our community is too. And how that's a source of uh, fulfillment. And I don't know, one that we shouldn't overlook. One that we should try to uh, plug into as much as we can. And with that, we're going to wrap up this episode of the Mr. Sensational Gino Vega podcast on the IC Robots Radio Network. Thanks, as always, for bearing with me. We will be back on our next episode, Lucky Episode 13. We will be talking about virtual communication, virtual friendships, virtual relationships. Speaking of community, um, we're going to be talking about what it's like to live online versus living face-to-face. And... Uh, Whether it's a good thing, whether it's a bad thing, or whether it's all a wash in the end, Uh, I might have um, uh, some book reviews on the next episode. I'm not sure if that's going to feature yet or not, but that is coming down the pike. And as I mentioned earlier, we're going to do some talk about uh, best practices for mail-in voting. So until next time, uh, thanks for tuning in. I hope you will come back uh, for another installment. And if you do, we will talk then. This is Mr. Sensational Gino Vega, signing off.